Yeah, that Jeep was badass. Yeah. He got it in, uh, well, it was already blaze orange, right? Mm -hmm. And so then the Inferno just kind of went really well with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was, I was actually pretty impressed. I was like, man, that's got, it's a little peacocky. And then I saw it, went and saw it in person with him. I was like, okay, I get it. I was like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> he had all the accessories. He came here to the office, and I was like, wow. Yeah. He dropped some coin on this thing. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, but he's, he's part of a club, right, that goes out and yep. trail rides and stuff. He's yeah. been known to drop a few dollars on his Jeeps. <laughs> yeah. He gets ever, some, ever since I've known him, he's he, he gets them exactly where he wants them, and then trades it in and starts all over again with a new one. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's been kind of a, actually I'm surprised he's kept the gladiator this long. It's been fascinating to me to see all the different supercars that have popped up in Cryptech. Yeah. Like we never imagined that. And it's all unsolicited. Like it's not like we're out trying to broker a deal. But Ferraris and Lamborghinis, uh Audis, I mean just super expensive cars mm -hmm. and or special builds and uh and then, you know, they'll pop up on social media or whatever. Mm -hmm. I, I talked about that with friends before, too. Like, you know, other guys who were Bravo 4s and stuff. And I feel like Cryptek is the new woodland of the 80s and 90s. Because there's lots of brands out there and t styles of camouflage. But none of them are, like, going ma in, ma like, video games. Like, you know, uh, Ghost Recon. The amount of Cryptek that's in there. Like, I feel like it's going to be, like, the new, uh, the new woodland. You know what I mean? Well, you know, we developed a camo sp specifically for the military. Right. And then the other variants that you're seeing on vehicles and stuff are, are uh, basically we plugged in different colorways. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, yes and no, because you would never see like the Woodland or Mossy Oak or Realtree or any of those called legacy camo patterns end up on a $300,000 Ferrari or Lamborghini. Good point. <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> that's, it's that's limited true. to basically the clothes. Yeah. Right. Well, it's, it's funny because anytime like I knew we were setting up this podcast and I'll tell people like, Hey, do you know Cryptek? Every, almost everybody knows oh, yeah. at least the name Cryptek. Yeah. Especially people that live here because you're from here. But of the few people that were like, no, what's, what's Cryptek? And I'm like, everything you've seen has been wrapped in Cryptek guns, cars, trucks, yeah, hats, shirts, everything. It has it on it. My wallet. I, I <laughs> try to, yeah, you, he has a Cryptek wallet. And I try to explain, like, you know, it's like the pattern almost looks like a honeycomb. You know, and oh yeah, yeah, I know it. I know it. Every even if they, at the beginning they say they don't know what it is. Yeah. As soon as I start describing it, everybody knows what Cryptek is. That's it's unique, very very unique look. The brand's bigger than we are for sure. And then to your opinion, we got really lucky by hitting a quote unquote lifestyle aspect. Mm -hmm. That was never the intent when we developed the camouflage. It was all about functionality. And at the time we had some of the world's best active duty snipers testing our stuff before we went into the U S army camo improvement effort. And they actually were calling it Mike's Mike Foxtrot, which in stood for mindfuck, <laughs> right? Because they would go out and do their acquisition tests just like they would be in woodland or ATAX or whatever. Uh -huh. And they're like, you know, wow, this is really super effective. But that, you know, uh, that design was all inspired by camouflage netting, which you called honeycomb. Mm -hmm. So the hexagons, just like in the ceiling in here, when you stretch real military grade issue camo netting over a hide site or over a vehicle, um, and those hexagons become distorted and that fabric's woven in and out, it takes on a super three dimensional aspect. Mm. And so through our combat experience, we saw that that was the most functional and effective, 
concealment measure on the battlefield next to a ghillie suit, which you would know right. about. But uh, ghillie suits are super cumbersome. Mm-hmm. They're really super heavy when they get wet. They're a pain in the ass. And they're hard to hunt in. And so anyway, it was about taking that three-dimensional aspect and putting it on a two-dimensional surface. And it was really hyper-focused into three primary regions, which was an arid, a woodland slash jungle, and then uh, transitional, everything in between. And uh, once those were set and those were off for DOD testing, then we said, well, what what happens if you stick, you know, some blacks and grays in here? Voila, Typhon. Oh, what about, you know, some more grays? Oh, Raid. And then, you know, snow camo. Yeah. Was was Yeti. We had to change it to Wraith because Yeti sued us. No way. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, yeah, it's the same macro micro pattern, just different colors, you know? Yeah. So like I've always been super attracted to like the Mandrake and Nomad, which I mean, I guess a lot of guys like me are. It's just like those colors that you kind of get used to wearing anyway. But now it's in Cryptech, which looks sick. So you're like, all right, you know. Um, yeah. No, I think, too, it's just it, what it reminded me of why I was drawn to it originally. Like back when ATAX was coming out, too. Like obviously, you, <laughs> I don't even see ATAX anywhere really anymore. Um, but it was because when we did camouflage things, we were essentially distorting netting. You know, Green Braves are doing it. You see a lot of snipers do it for the rifles or spotting scopes, tripods. Yeah. You know, just getting the netting on there, but then kind of like – moving it, crinkling at certain places, spray paint, do it again, do maybe like a, another color, you know? So it's like, we were almost trying to get that effect, but this effect is so much more, you know, so much better. Yeah. That stenciling is super popular mm-hmm. in all the communities that are hyper-focused on concealment. Right. And so taking just normal netting, stretching it out, spray painting it. I mean, it's that basic and the true inspiration dates back to world war two. I think you know, the Germans actually developed uh, camo netting early on. Yeah. And it's been there forever. But once you get to see all these coalition forces that are all wearing, you know, their country's camouflage and how effective it is, you you can kind of analyze what worked, what didn't work. And we're looking at it from an aerial perspective, right? We're flying around in Apache attack helicopters and we're seeing the Italians and the Bosnians and the Dutch and, you know, everybody that's in theater and you're like, man, that sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Or wow. How can they, how did that get approved? Seriously. We had our own hiccups in the U S too, you know? Um, so anyway, then you get to see, well, even though they look like crap, their talk or their tactical operations center, you know, it's tight because uh, it's covered up in camo netting. And that's the end state. I mean, really, you know, it's been painted a lot of different pictures. You used honeycomb. I've heard moth wings. I've heard reptilian. I've heard blah, blah, blah. But it's just as simple as what we saw as super effective camo netting on the battlefield. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, it's freaking unique. You don't see anything like it, that pattern. You don't see that anywhere. Right. Yeah. And I also like – you said the lifestyle thing you guys got in life because most standard camouflage, like when you see a guy just wearing camouflage out in his day to day life, you, people automatically think like hillbilly, you know, right. backwoods, but it's not like that when you see someone wearing cryptic, it's, nope. it's different. It, it, it doesn't have like that backwoods hillbilly look to it. If that makes sense. You, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It makes all the sense in the world. That's, that's back to my analogy on supercars. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, you would never see some of those vehicles 
decorated in some of these, you know, sticks and leaves camo, yeah, let's yeah, call it. Yeah. Cause that would just be outlandish, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you might see that somewhere, but the first, the first real wake up to that was, um, there's a guy named Josh Cartu and he's an Israeli born, um, kind of jet set guy. And he's, I think he's officially sponsored by Ferrari. Like, here's your keys type sponsorship, mm. you know, and Jeez. all he does is travel all over the world and, you know, go to these major events and so on and so forth. And he contacted us uh, years ago and said, Hey, I really would like to utilize, uh, your camo on my cars to race across Europe for the gumball 3000. Mm. And I'm like, why, why are you wanting to do this? And they said, well, they put the analogy out or the theme this year is camouflage. So he wrapped two Ferraris and a Rolls Phantom as his chase car. <laughs> and they they ripped through Europe for, I don't know how long it is, 10 days or something, going to all these you know fancy destinations and whatnot. And it's a major event. And I was like, man, that is, that's, we, there's something different, you know? Yeah. So anyway. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's like a unique is the best word I can think of for, yeah. for what you guys do. Well, it shows, it shows obviously because people vote with their dollars and when the company's still in business and is not being left behind, you know I mean? I still see you guys like, Oh, they're still in the, you're not, you're not complete. I don't see your company as complacent when I see it from the outside at least. So that means good things. When people, companies are complacent and like, are they falling behind and they're firing people, letting people go. What's not getting sales. But as people that are not complacent, it looks like they're doing cool things and they're moving forward. That's a big sign. Like I'm like, I'm back, I want to back those people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Well, it's been a lot of right place, right time, major blessings too. You know, being down selected in the U.S. Army camo improvement effort was number one. Uh, penetration into U.S. spec ops, both Army and Navy, was major. And then you mentioned earlier, like getting, you know, the video games and the movies and stuff that all happened organically. Like everything happened organically. You know, you can go and hire somebody to get placement in, in movies mm -hmm. and you pay these people to get your product in the movies. And sometimes you pay a lot and all that stuff happened just, you know, by the grace of God. I mean, wow. quite miraculously, you know, so it wasn't like we went out and pushed it and just, yeah, just they came to us. That's cool. I think that's wow. the best way for things to happen is when it happens organically. You don't have to sell yourself. Yeah, like and that, and yeah. you, it's not that you didn't put an effort, but you didn't put an effort for that, and it happened. Right. You know what I'm saying? And I I think that's more satisfying in any avenue of life when stuff happens organically. And it like we were just telling you about the way this podcast is rolling. It's been organic. Originally, yeah. it was us sitting around with our friends. You right. Can't, you can't force love. Love finds you. <laughs> <laughs> you know. But no, I mean, it was. That's literally. We were like, well, let's sit down and do this. We're both podcast fans. We both know how to talk. Let's try it out. And I kind of know how to talk. I don't yeah. Know. He. I'm learning. He's <laughs> a little socially awkward at times, but I keep telling him, I'm like, you're only socially awkward until the conversation starts. Then he's a good conversationalist. It's just getting it started, huh? Yeah. yeah. Oh man, yeah. it's 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 probably just typical like nerd brain, you know. I, you know, um, yeah, just super shy, and it's kind of funny too, not fitting in at BSU. Like you walk into like a, you know, like optics three thirty, you know, upper upper division optics at physics class. Like, are you in the right? Are you in the right room? <laughs> it's like tats and shit. Like, or like, yeah, dude. Like, you sure? Like, you know what this is? Like, 
yes, <laughs> you fuckers. Like, I get that a lot. Like, uh, yeah, like you don't belong here. But um, like, you're not a virgin. That's kind of weird. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but no, like conversation wise, yeah, he's awkward at first, especially with yeah. somebody you don't know. But doing this, and you've gotten better at it. We're sitting down with people like yourself who we've never met in person. You're doing just fine. Yeah. You're, you're good at conversation. Well, and when when I found out you guys were hometown, I was like, oh, we got to have you guys over. We, we just, definitely appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and being born and raised here, there's a few companies around here like Cryptech who we know that name. We yeah. know and we know it's from here. Uh, Everly Stock's another one. And right. that's one that like for years I would drive by their building and I'm like, what the hell is Everly stock? It's like, is that some Swedish furniture store? <laughs> <laughs> like, what the hell is this place? And I, I didn't know what it was. He knew what it was cause he used some of their gear. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't even, I've never even, I don't know what that is. And over the past few years I've become more familiar with it, but something like, like that's a company I knew existed because I grew up here and same with Cryptech. It's well, I was born and raised in Idaho fifth generation um my great-grandparents homesteaded in eastern idaho a little town called rockland and my wife's the same way too she her family homesteaded out here by lake lulz we're both fifth generation idahoans but i left i was gone for 22 years from the time i graduated went to college went to u.s army flight school did all my military time uh, ended up in Alaska and actually from a history perspective on cryptic cryptic was truly formed in Alaska because that's where I was at when things started to get momentum and pick up and stuff like that and we got a lot of really nice organic lift when we were in Alaska like the front page of the Fairbanks Daily News minor mm-hmm. and it got picked up nationally and stuff like that so coming back home it's almost like you got to reestablish that we're an idaho brand and you know it's not like we had those major big wins that got all the fancy lift like we did when we were in alaska and so it's kind of a slow slow fade back into the community and the treasure valley kind of understanding the boise valley understanding that we are local because i find I run into guys that are huge cryptic fans and, and they don't even know like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't realize you guys were right here. Yeah. So it kind of snuck back in under the radar and yeah. kind of been quiet a little bit mm-hmm. about it. That yeah. type of thing. And I think because you guys are set, I mean, international brand and you're in movies and you're on video games and all that, I could see why people think from, from here, from Idaho. I don't believe there's no way they're from here. <laughs> Cause such people that grew up in Idaho. You can't do great things when you're from here. Right. When you, when you, when you've grown up here your whole life, it's a, you see it as a small town still. You do. You're not, you're not viewing it from the lens of people coming in the last 20 years. You're like, that company's from here? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Because, you know, it yeah. just doesn't, you think those companies are from Texas or California. You know, you yeah. just don't see it being from here. Like, no, there's a lot of, you know, we, until they, well, they're done now, but we had Gemtech, we have you guys, we had Everly Stock. There's a lot of great brands coming mm-hmm. out oh, yeah. of this area, you know. Th- this, well, Idaho in general, but just this corridor right here has a multitude of really, fantastic outdoor shooting related brands especially in the firearms you know there's some fantastic brands nemo firearms is yes pws you know taxol um if you go north you got uh, a handful more a brand great brands yeah Mm -hmm. what's that i love those guys uh oh i'm an asshole wolf yeah um something wolf um yeah they i know which ones you're talking about yeah yeah those are good guys up there um, so anyway, so a lot of awesome brands, but to your point, you know, some of them like 
have more of a presence with regards to a storefront or, you know, factories and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, and it's like, I knew you guys were here, but I didn't know this was all here because I've never been in here. When we walked in the front door, I'm like, Jesus, this place is fucking awesome. Yeah. I didn't know this little spot here existed. (laughs) So you were saying like you were looking for something for more of a storefront area. Yeah, we are. When we moved back to Idaho, Claycorn was still in, uh, still active duty. He hadn't separated yet, but, um, it was just our laptop computers and our cell phones. That was our office, wherever we had to be, you know, mm-hmm. and wherever we were at. Mm-hmm. But this place, uh, was being basically turned into some lease properties. It was a big restaurant right here and mm-hmm. we found it before it came up on the market. So we've had major giant brands come in here, like big companies, like billion dollar per year type companies. And, We've gotten a lot of accolades on the office, even though it's a small space. It really reflects, you know, our our mentality and who we are as individuals. And there's a lot of lineage and stuff around. But, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's just kind of a good representation of who we are as the brand and what the brand is. Yeah, I of It's weird how you see a lot of, you know, not your average vets. I mean, vets who are motivated people motivated intelligent people like evan as well and everything like come out and make businesses like this that are super cool and fun places to be Mm -hmm. this isn't like your general like all right it's an office with tan walls and there's a drinking fountain over there like i would kill myself to work in a place like that yeah like why can't we just build the place we want to hang out in all day what's so wrong with that you know yeah so that's why i walked in i was like all right these guys are obviously cool same yeah yeah crafting kind of lifestyle by design you know, yeah. that's, there's an enormous amount of really good vets that have, um, taken their experience and folded it into their passions. Yep. And I just absolutely despise like the whole mentality of, oh, well, you're a vet. That means you're broken. And you know, you're, mm-hmm. you know, and I don't understand a lot of that. I know that exists and there's those, some guys need a hand up and stuff, but there's some, you know, really exceptional businessmen as well yeah especially you know with the leadership that comes out of the experience that can't be afforded to you uh, through without going through the military yeah. i mean regardless of what high-speed ivy lead school you go to you know you're not gonna if one of the i guess I'll, I'll sum it up to say the highest honor that i've ever personally held was leading u.s soldiers in combat Mm-hmm. And there's only one way to duplicate that, to go into combat. <laughs> mm-hmm. So anyway, um, and through that, I think the number one lesson becomes just, you know, complex problem solving and being able to understand your resources, understand your left and right limits and limitations, and you make the most out of it and, you know, do everything you can with uh, the constraints that you have. And that's probably served me the best from a military aspect. Yeah, I know, like, We've talked about this on here before because I'm not a vet, but I've kind of surrounded myself in veterans. Like my dad's a veteran, Kevin, a lot of my close friends are veterans and I have a deep respect for people who've done that in their life. And it, it's not even about that they were in the military. It's what they got from that. Like you were just talking about, there's like an attention to detail and that's not every vet. Maybe some guys are a piece of shit when they get out. Who knows? I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But it was a bell curve. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, there seems to be an attention to detail, um, being on time, that's huge for me. I hate when people are late to things. It seems like all my friends that are veterans, if you tell them to be somewhere, 
they're either going to be there right on the dot or early. And I respect that. I think that's how it should be. I think everybody should strive to do that. And it seems most people who've came from a military background have that like ingrained within them to, to be a certain way. And like starting this podcast, that's another reason I wanted Kevin to do this with me because I want to run this kind of like a business. I want to, I want to do something with this and we don't even know what that is yet, but we want this to turn into something for us. And as of now, it's like the organic thing we're talking about. That's starting to happen. We're starting to bring people on and letting them tell people about their business, about their life and stuff like that. And having a veteran like Kevin, who like we were talking about doing this, going on the road, taking it. And he's, he's the one that says, you know, create a packing list, do this, do this. (laughs) And I'm I'm like, yes, that's, that's perfect. Cause my mind doesn't think like that. I'm pretty detail oriented, but not like that. So like what you were saying, I think the broken veteran thing. Yeah. I think that's a thing sometimes, but most of vets I know aren't that way. Right. The they broken, have, they have a sense of humor. They're fun. They're, yeah. you know what I mean? The broken veteran doesn't, there's a, there's a multitude of things going to that. For one, they don't have, they don't know how to write their own op order. How do I have purpose? How do I have meaning in my life? Guys who have already kind of practiced that, like a lot of times they've gone to school first, they've practiced creative thinking. Like how can I think my way through this? How can I not be in a pit? I need a goal. Okay. Let's find a goal. Let's find a mission. Let's move forward. Let's not sit in the same place and just dwell. Right. Some people don't have any coping mechanisms at all. And you, you kind of pick up on that really quick when you meet other vets, you know, whether they were that way or they're not. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and like in my past when I've met guys like that, I met them with negativity, but like I've gotten older, more understanding. I'm like, okay, maybe do the opposite. Maybe show them some love or like I give a shit about them and give them a chance and they may warm up. They may understand like, Oh, I just feel like no one gives a fuck about me, you mm-hmm. know? And sometimes that doesn't work. Sometimes they're just so assholes. Like, all right, well, peace, dude. Like, hopefully something finds you better, you know, down the road. Yeah, well, that's not even necessarily yeah. a veteran thing. I think that's a human thing. Yeah, There's yeah. people who just don't know how to. We're all human. Yeah. How to get through life. Yeah. And some of those people just need some direction. Yeah. Or a friend to, like, be there for them. They'd be like, hey, man, let's, let's fucking do something with your life. And I've known a lot of people. We've Another thing we've talked about on here a million times is there's people who just put themselves in bad situation after bad situation. The victim mentality. Yeah. And eventually they just stay there yeah. and there's no getting them out. And they never seem to realize that they're doing it to themselves. I fucking hate that because we've talked about, you know, we have people in our lives that are that way. And it's like, God, you can do something to get yourself out of this hole you're in, but you're not. You just keep bringing on this. You're, it's like you crave the the chaos in your yeah. life. And I know a few people like that. Surrounding yourself with, you know, like-minded individuals that have goals and aspirations is super important. And, um, that's a, I think a key to succeeding really is to put yourself into environments that are going to be long-term beneficial versus short-term fun or, you know, short-term party type, Mm -hmm. but, uh, you're in trouble. Yeah. Really? Well, and that's kind of what we're doing now with talking to guys like yourself. We're starting to surround ourselves with these guys who have created something, whether it's you or whether it's Evan Hafer or whether it's whoever. John, dude. Yeah, Yeah, John Moss from Mountain Primal Meats. I mean, these guys have forged their own path and created something fucking cool. And now we're starting to surround ourselves with these guys. We're sitting down talking to guys like you and seeing what you've done with it. Like we were just talking about, this place is fucking awesome. And that's because you've done your own thing. You've you forge your own path 
and that's inspirational to us, you know, because we both have aspirations to do cool things too. Yeah. And we're, we're, yeah. And, and it's weird because we had no bias coming to this podcast, but we just keep on getting people like you on here. It's like, when can we get on someone on here who doesn't appreciate hard work? Who's just <laughs> like a shit bag on here. Yeah. Can the government just give me money so I can do whatever I want to do? Like, <laughs> you know, I just want to meet that person versus people who are like, um, I'd rather build my own path and do my own thing. Yeah. We've been super lucky. Mind my own fucking business and just try to be happy. Like <laughs> we haven't had anybody on there. Well, it's like, that know. goes back to the organic thing. That's yeah, what this yeah. podcast has turned into. It's just organically turned into a bunch of ass kickers who are, who were yeah. getting to come on here. Yep. And it's not even necessarily business owners. We've had just Seriously. everyday normal people, but some avenue in their life, they kick ass at it. Yep. And it's cool to highlight that. And it's cool to find out about that. Yeah. I love to be around ass kickers. Yeah. Whatever their, you know, what their expertise is, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's just fascinating. And it, it's always, you know, impressive. You think that you've met, you know, oh man, that dude is just a rock star, right? Or mm-hmm. I can't believe he did that and this. And then you find somebody else, you know, maybe not the next day, but somewhere down the road. And it's just like, love hearing great stories about, mm-hmm. you know, guys that um, have been in tough situations or, or just in, you know, endless drama and, they've fought through it and, and built a better life for themselves. And they come out better yeah. on the other end. That's, that's a theme of this damn podcast. We talk about struggle all the time is people that find their way through it. Right. They're almost always better off on the other end of it. And that's what it doesn't even have to be anything super significant. I mean, it could be putting yourself into a gym, working out, doing jujitsu, whatever it is, you're better off for it. You're, you're introducing some struggle into your life. Well, cause you have humility and you have vulnerability. Yeah. Two things the majority of Americans refuse to accept yeah. to have in their life. Well, and then there's people who you have know. struggle thrown upon them and they're not searching for it. And well, yeah. if they find their way through it, they're almost always better on the other side of that. Yeah. And that's been a theme on here. Like everybody we've talked to has been through some, some kind of shit that's led them to be where they are now. And I mean, including yourself with your military background, you've had some dark fucking times, Mm -hmm. but it's turned you into who you are. And I like to hear those stories from people. Yeah. Well, so does turning everything into a joke. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's, that's what you do. But like, I mean, I never thought about until like recently, who was I talking to? Maybe it was your bar when he was on like, okay, you you come after you do the battle damage assessment after, you know, an A-10 does a 30, my, my gun run and there's like dicks and like faces and stuff. And you don't respond with like, oh my God, what is that? You like make a joke out of it. That's just your knee jerk reaction. Like, damn, that's crazy. You know, that's how you process that it's processing. Time. But yeah. then there are some people who see it and are like, I am going to puke. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm done, you know? Um, so I guess that just kind of shows, I guess people are a little different when you react to those kind of things. But yeah, you just turn everything into a joke. But dark then ref- humor. Yeah. Dark humor and reflect on it later and you're like, oh, what's wrong with me? But then you still kind of joke about it again. Well, you're still processing it. Also, yeah. I think it's an important thing when you've gone through shitty times to be able to talk about them, which you've gotten better about over the past year. I two haven't years. talked about really anything other than until well, yeah, recently. Recently, yeah. I mean, like, so we had we did a podcast. Who he was? It was a friend of his who he served with, and he came on, and they were. I just sat back and listened to them like go down memory lane, and it was really cool to hear because I've heard <laughs> I've heard some of his stories from the military and stuff, and but they're 
there's some stuff, you know, maybe he doesn't feel comfortable sharing with someone who wasn't there with him. And so he did, but he also shared it with me and everybody else that listens to this. Yes, yeah, pretend like no one was watching. And it was but, it was really cool to hear you just openly talk about the shit you went through. And same with Mario, who was our mm-hmm. guest. He was talking about some stuff, and yeah, that's happened with a few of our guests. People get a little vulnerable when you put a microphone in front of them. Not always, but it's I appreciate that. Yeah. I, I like the vulnerability because I know when I'm listening to a podcast, those are podcasts I like. I like to hear into these people's lives a little bit. But you want to get something away from it. Yeah. There's nothing to get away from a pod. If it's just guys bullshitting and making jokes, I don't have time for that. Like, I want to get something out of it. If mm-hmm. it's not educational, then it better be a conversation you can get something out of or have some introspective after you listen to yeah. it. Like, oh, fuck, that's me. Or I need to be that way. You well, know, there's a place know, for, for being an idiot and stuff, which we've done. Well, and yeah. we make jokes, that's but if that's inter- all that's you're an, about. Yeah, that's, an, like that's an, usually as an interlude to something else, yeah. you know. Yeah. The podcasts I listen to are always mostly, you know, educational. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. find myself getting pulled down into those rabbit holes versus the entertainment. But, um, yeah, lots of insights that you otherwise wouldn't get. That's for sure. So we better make this educational or funny here real soon. I guess. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so actually. Actually, no, we will. So uh, I've just remembered. We actually talked about this off the podcast. My memory is fucking shit. <laughs> so um, can we go rewind and go back to uh, – I guess uh, we knew that you grew up here. So I guess your education and what you did in the military. Yeah, I, I graduated from Nampa High down the road here in 1992, and the f- my first year of college was actually at Norwich University in Vermont. And I went oh. out. I went out there because they had a superior rifle team, NCAA competitive rifle team, and I was super competitive uh, shooter at the time, three position and stuff. Um, and made the varsity team, traveled up and down the East Coast. It was a super cool experience. Norwich itself was a little bit different, you know. Um, but uh, I ended up transferring to Gonzaga University in Spokane because my wife, well, she was my girlfriend at the time, but my wife was going to Boise State. Okay. And so I was going to do the best I could to get closest uh, to her. So uh, they had the best uh, ROTC program in the Northwest. And that's what I had. I had a started off with a four-year Army ROTC program, or scholarship, rather. And um, so I graduated in 96 or 97. Uh, I actually had to go five years because I was getting my degree in mechanical engineering, and you couldn't just get it in four. Yeah. And fortunately, the Army paid for the fifth year. That was huge because Gonzaga is super expensive, Mm -hmm. even back then. I can't imagine what it is now. Oh, yeah. And... um, I was super fortunate, uh, got selected to go to U.S. Army Flight School and uh, went out to Fort Rucker, Alabama, um, and basically was picked up after uh, it was. I would have been devastated had I not been selected for Apache attack helicopters. And so that um, was super enamoring to me. That was something that I just absolutely fell in love with early on just because of the lethality you know, I mean, it is one badass piece yeah. of equipment yeah. and the mobility and just everything else. I mean, it's the most lethal weapons platform as far as I'm concerned on the battlefield, at least at the time it was definitely, this is pre UAV and all that other right. junk. So, uh, yeah, I flew Apache attack helicopters. Uh, my first duty assignment out of, of, um, Fort Rucker was, uh, South Korea. And, uh, I ended up going to Camp Humphreys, Korea and went into the six cab brigade and, was supposed to be a year-long tour, um, unaccompanied. The chain of command said I could bring my wife over, but we had to live on the local economy. Couldn't live on post. Really oh. weird, right? No yeah. housing for wives on post. 
Um, but I ended up extending four times and, and did two years in Korea and then came back to the 101st. Um, and then shortly thereafter was 9-11. And that's when it, you know, shit hit the fan type thing. Mm-hmm. So to answer your question, education, Gonzaga University, degree in mechanical engineering, flew Apache Tech helicopters. Um, was I'm more than confident it was the very first Apache pilot in to Afghanistan because I was a part of the ADVON for the 101st uh, Task Force Rakasan, and the uh-huh. Marines had just seized Kandahar. Uh-huh. And so 10 of us went over there, and I went over as the uh, aviation, uh, attack aviation LNO. And um, that was super cool. I got to go fly a Super Cobra with the Marines and oh. shoot some toes and, you know, do some cool missions. I remember one of the very first missions we went on was a fam, a fam ride where we were going to go out and shoot this derelict Soviet equipment. And it, this shit was all over out there, right? Yeah. It was just like left in place. So anyway, go and uh, do our stuff and come back into the FARP. And we're refueling, and this radio's transmission starts to come across, and he's talking to this captain marine that's in the back flying. Well, they were cranking another aircraft to go do route or uh, convoy security, and um, the aircraft broke, and so we were ready to go, and I end up doing getting to go do this convoy security, and through the basically Overwatch of watching these guys go out to this little village, um, I find out that they're CIA guys and they're buying back Stinger missiles and $100,000 a pop. And they hand this dude a bag for $1.2 million in cash. And he hands them back 12 derelict Stinger missiles that were left over uh, that the CIA had provided when we were fighting the Russians there. Yeah. And so anyway, that was a super nice, neat little sidekick deal to it. But um, yeah, so uh, Operation Anaconda, that was a big fight. I also got to do some other cool shit that normally you wouldn't get to do. I got to air assault into Tora Bora onto the ground with the three PPCLI, Third Princess Patricia's Light Infantry. They were attached to us out of Edmonton, Canada, and they had a <laughs> platoon of spelunkers, cave dwellers uh-huh. or cave explorers. So they got attached to us. And before I'm setting the conditions be, to go into Tora Bora, before this mission goes, they were they knew they were going to go back into Tora Bora and exploit the caves pop them back open and basically look for DNA, bin Laden's body specifically. Well, there was a, they were doing a night live fire exercise again on that Soviet derelict equipment. And, um, there was a 500 pound J dam that was dropped from a U.S. air force plane into the fob without getting clearance. And it ended up killing four of the guys. I think it was four and messed a bunch of other up. But the end state was that we couldn't have another fratricide with the Canadians. And so as a control measure, because, you know, you got JTACs for dropping for the Air Force, but the Army just does close combat attacks. We don't have somebody on the ground that's, like, going to coordinate fires. Like, I would call you if I'm flying a mission for you, and you would just coordinate and we'd deconflict fires. So... The Canadians had never trained with Apaches, and so as a control measure, I would air assaulted in with them, and I was on the ground there for two weeks, and basically, if a battle had erupted, I would have been the one that had been playing the ground role. Gotcha. So, anyway. So, Afghanistan, and then um, I commanded uh, Renegade Troop 4-3 ACR, and actually, that was a combat uh, command in Iraq. 
so I got to play in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and uh, I also went back to Afghanistan and Iraq later, but that was part of a, a special deal for Airspace Command and Control later on in my life. And those are just some, I guess, the highlights really, but education, yeah, and units and what I did. <laughs> units, uh, yeah. Baker did tell us to ask you about the white tit. Oh, no, it's not the white tit. It's the big titty. Because he, 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 I think he called it white tit, but let's hear it. <laughs> the big titty mosque. So in uh, Talafar, Iraq, there was a giant mosque, and it looks like a beautiful, like, 3D tit. And so everybody called it the big titty mosque. It's got a nipple on the top. I mean, I don't know if they did it on purpose or not. But <laughs> it looks just like it. And when you're in Iraq or Afghanistan, by the way, um, things like that can bother you a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> like you see like a, you see some, I don't want to be sexist or anything, but you see like, if you're going to call a girl a one, if you see a girl that's a one in Iraq, Afghanistan, she's a 10. Like, <laughs> um, yeah. So just seeing something that's shaped Especially like a, Air Force girls. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> what? Just cause you've been over, over there uniforms. so long. Yes. PT uniforms are like. Like the shorts are cut to be yeah. really high. Mm. Yeah, they're wearing those. Uh, they're basically wearing just navy blue silkies, like That's ranger right. panties, essentially. Yeah, and like the army's uh, conditioning shorts are eventually, uh, are essentially just uh, like for birth control. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the big titty mosque that was a part of uh, a major battle called Operation Restoring Rights, and mm. to set the conditions for uh, the tee up. Um, so Talafar, Iraq's really close to the Syrian border, and there's a section in Talafar called the Saraya district. It's on really the the east side of the town, and and it's a super cool, crazy historical community. I mean, there's a castle in the middle of Talafar that was erected by the Roman Empire, right? Yeah. And then this community kind of like grew up around this checkpoint or this, check, this outpost, this Roman outpost. Well, the Saraya district is a really ancient part of the town. And, you know, I heard a oh, thousand years old. And uh, there's really not a good layout in how this town was formed. The, like, you could almost tell in some cases where there was a good donkey path that became like the path that everybody built their mud and brick homes around. And okay. so the end state with uh, the Soraya district is that you couldn't get any mech or armor into that area. And the Al-Qaeda basically stood up a IED factory inside that area. And it's super hard to get in there and fight because you can't use, you know, can't use conventional shit that we like to use to get into places. Mm -hmm. And so, um, during Operation Restoring Rights, basically, H.R. Uh, McMaster was the uh, commander, and they they dropped shit tons of pamphlets for, like, weeks and told everybody to get out, you know, that they were going to come into the Soraya district. And then we were working close, hand-in-hand -hand with the Peshmerga. Um, we had an element from the 82nd Airborne that came in. We had, of course, a bunch of other coalition spec ops guys involved. But the bottom line was that... Uh, the bad guys stayed in place and um the end state is the the battle started and the h64s got used extensively because mm -hmm. uh to drop a 500 pound or a thousand pound j down there's an enormous amount of collateral mm -hmm. damage and so we were flying with 
you know, Mike model and Charlie model Hellfire missiles, and we could be extremely precise. And also, the U.S. Army didn't have to get clearance of fires through through uh, the the joint aspect of it. So we got used extensively. We shot, you know, well at one point we were responsible for like ninety to ninety five percent of the BDA. I mean, <laughs> we were just ripping. Yeah. And uh, we ended up shooting overall fifty two Hellfires in that battle, which was more than any other unit had shot regardless of their size like battalion level and we were just one troop that had uh, well actually we fought that fight with seven aircraft we normally would have eight but um the big titty mosque at one point clayhorn the other founder of cryptic was my wingman for like 95 percent of our missions and we we're flying back coming off of you know doing a bunch of of engagements and i tuned up a ground frequency um of uh element of uh called fox that was their call sign was fox and i started listening to their internal which i did this a lot you know and um they were in an engagement with these guys that were shooting them from the mosque and so uh we were almost bingo fuel like we're there's a this feature in the aircraft when your fuel starts to get low you get this beetle beetle that's what we called it it's just you know this audible sound okay and so we're just about out of fuel and we really need to get back to get uh, refueled and rearmed. So I'm listening to their internal frequency. I, the mosque is like right here out the right door. I'm like, dude, we've never been in a, could be in a better position. So I call up, you know, Fox 5 and I say, hey, this is Renegade 06. I've got approximately two minutes on station. We can engage, you know, from our current location but we only have a couple minutes. And so I'm listening to him coordinate fires with his ground elements and so on. The long story short is I can tell that he's going to give me weapons release authority because he's talking about basically his fire distribution plan with the rest of his, his guys that are in place. Okay. You know, and he's like, okay, Fox, Fox 7, I'm going to have you engage here, and Fox 4, you engage here, and I'm going to have Renegade shoot here. And so I'm like, he's going to give us clearance of fire. So basically take both the aircraft to get into the profile. I'm still listening on one net and talking on the other and uh, managing multiple radios. And uh, I'm like, dude, we are going to have one pass here. And I can tell I'm not going to get him to say you're cleared to engage <laughs> before we're out of this diving profile that we're in. Um, we were operating at high altitude for this fight. Okay. Um, that's a whole nother story. You know, it was a Israeli tactic that we brought in and did it for the very first time oh, by wow. U.S. aircraft and shooting Hellfire missiles well above 5,000 feet, like in 8,000. Shit. And so, um, anyway, I, I basically made a call that, like, hey, this guy's going to give me weapons release authority, so I let the missile leave the rail. And as this missile's inbound to the mosque... He finally comes up on the on the net and he's like, Renegade 06, you're cleared to engage. And I shit you not. <laughs> as soon as he says you're cleared to engage, the missile impacts. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> <laughs> Which becomes a really important part of this rest of the story and why you got this teed up. So I so I tee uh, the mic and I come internal and I go back to gun two, which is Claycorn, and I'm like, hey, put as many missiles as you can in that mosque. Well, they're engaging with tank main gun rounds, like from, you know, outside the, the basically the cordon. 
and this thing's just uh, turns into this black cloud of smoke and everything's getting obscured. Well, Claycorn was able to get one more missile into the mosque and then it's just a complete disaster from a visibility perspective. Um, so we only got two in there, but we come out of this dive after the engagement and we are like now hightailing back to the FARP to get, to get refueled primarily, but also rearmed. So now we're in the FARP and all of a sudden on my right door here and I look over and it's our squadron commander and he's, he's trying, I open the door initially and it's so loud where our blades are hundred percent and we're just getting rearmed refuel. Cause we're going to go back to the fight. And he's like talking to me and I point to him. I say, grab the headset from the crew chief. He puts it on and I go, what's going on? He goes, I need to get your gun tape. And I, and I was like, okay, why? And he said, the Pentagon is seeing and hearing all this chitter chatter about how we're attacking the holy places in Talafar. And I understand you guys just engaged the mosque in Talafar. And I said, yeah, there's, it's true. There's a bunch of bad guys, you know, engaging our ground guys from the mosque. And I'm like, how, I mean, I'm looking at my watch and I'm like, it's, it's like 15 minutes, 10 minutes later. This is not like a day later. Mm -hmm. And these guys are literally on the internet and their chat boxes or whatever. And they're saying, oh, they're attacking our holy places in Talafar or whatever. The bottom line is, thank God that the tape went, it, when it, there was good evidence, right? And yeah. so they popped our tapes out, they put new ones in, they took them back, digitized them, and uh, they sent them back to whomever was asking the question from the Pentagon that was watching this from, a, I guess, a digital perspective. Mm -hmm. um, and we went back out and shot a bunch more stuff and engaged, you know, a bunch of enemy and Al Qaeda and um, came back and I went, you know, after shutdown and debriefs and whatnot, I went up to the talk to ask him, you know, what the deal was. That's when I found out like about, you know, the Pentagon and Rumsfeld asking and all this stuff. Yeah. So anyway, that's the, not the big white titty. It's the big titty mosque. But. <laughs> the big titty mosque. <laughs> that's a, that's nuts. Yeah. Like, and luckily he said, go ahead. <laughs> well, I knew he's going to say, go ahead. I mean, it was more than evident and you could actually, you know, hear the fire that they were taking and it was substantial. Mm -hmm. And, uh, they went in and did a, a BDA, a battle damage assessment afterwards. And there was just nine Al Qaeda that basically were, you know, in that mosque and, and the, we killed them all. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know how many we personally killed out of the nine. That was a small number. I mean, there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Al Qaeda that were ended up being killed in that fight. And, uh, the big fish in the fight was, uh, Zarqawi, which okay. was then, then the number two, mm -hmm. um, individual. And that was kind of like his main, you know, I guess hub, they would build these IEDs and VBIDs and project them into Mosul and into, um, Baghdad, um, and everything in between. And it was just this like logistic warehouse and like, I mean, it was, you know, they would sneak the stuff in from Syria and then they would just, you know, had a bunch of workers in there making these, you know, evil, evil, um, explosives. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it was a major, huge success though. Yeah. The whole battle, the reason why that battle, in my opinion, is not better known, at least at the time was that, uh, hurricane Katrina hit the same exact week okay. that that battle was going on. Um, if you remember, remember that, mm -hmm. but 2005, yeah, it was a super significant deal for us. A year after we got back, I was contacted by Lockheed Martin 
and the head of their missile program um, wanted to commission a painting of us in combat. Wow. And uh, they ended up uh, hiring this extremely famous uh, aviation artist. I think his last name is Thompson's, Tompkins. And we, pl- we provided him a bunch of content and video and pictures and so on. And then uh, they had me go down to their um, facility in Orlando, Florida, to speak to the engineers that basically developed and worked on not just engineers, but just the workers as well, the Hellfire missile, the guys that fabricated the Hellfire. And they filled this auditorium twice. There was 300 seating in that auditorium. Um, And I basically gave them a presentation on how we utilized the missiles, because this is completely different than how they were intended. They're intended to kill armor and mech, you know, and force on force near peer competitors. And now we're using it to shape the battlefield against, you know, terrorists. Right. So anyway, um, yeah, that was a huge honor. The name of the painting was called uh, Renegade Attack. And and it was all in light of uh, the fact that we had shot so many Hellfire missiles. We we shot like 20,000 rounds of 30 millimeter, <laughs> 10,000 2.75 inch rockets too. I mean, we just didn't use Hellfires, but uh, but by far that was the most, I guess, effective weapon system that we played. We shot so many Hellfires that they had to do an emergency resupply and send um, Chinooks down to a adjacent Marine Corps uh, organization and took all their hellfires and brought them back to our farm. <laughs> we just ripped through them. Wow. And it's so. just impressive to be like, you know, I guess for people who really enjoy the 4th of July, it's extremely impressive just to be near what these things are doing when they're doing it. Um, just the vibrations, the sounds, everything that's happening, the adrenaline. Cause I've been near, obviously, you know, gun runs, Apaches, whatever. And, it's just you can't you can't replicate it. Just being the guy that's on the ground, yeah. And you're like you're super motivated because it's something that's helping you. The sound is making the vibrations. You know, it's just uh, it's something else. You know, you know, from my perspective, from the guy who's on you know a boot, you know, um, it's pretty sweet. Yeah, there's definitely a psychology, an impact uh, that's you know, a combination of all that brought together, even just the sound of the, you know, the rotor, same thing with an A-10, or even when, you know, you bring in like an F-16 for just a flyby, uh-huh. kind of show force type stuff, for sure. I think that uh, the psychology of putting fear in your enemy is extremely valuable. Yeah. Because when these guys, when they know or they hear that, they shit themselves, right? And so you already have the upper hand before you've even pulled the trigger. But it's this consistent display of overwhelming precision and firepower and accuracy where they've obtained that, you know. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we got to do uh, out of Talafar is go patrol the Syrian border. That was a major part of our, you know, mission set. And we would we would work uh, with J-Stars uh, that would had a – they'd pick up uh, moving target indicators out of Syria. And these guys would – uh, come over. It, that's the big plane that has like the giant radar on top, right? And yeah. so he would, he, they would get these these movements in the desert, in the Syrian desert, and they would download them to our longbows. We're flying longbows, so we'd automatically get these icons, and we find these targets super fast. They're normally bongo trucks, jingle trucks, sometimes bigger semis, that type of thing. Yeah. 
But anyway, uh, one night we engaged a bunch of these um, trucks and they brought in the recovery team in Blackhawks and uh, they ended up capturing a bunch of these guys. And we uh, ended up flying back and they brought them back to Talafar and they had them, you know, sacked up. And I got out of the aircraft and shut down and I went over and the interpreters stand there and they're pulling security on these dudes. And I asked the interpreter, say, ask them what happened. And so he starts talking to him and, um, he says, he comes back and he says, he doesn't know, uh, there were monsters and demons and a spitting witch. And he's talking about us. <laughs> and I said, a spitting witch. Spitting witch. <laughs> yeah. Man, so that's yeah. cool. I, that I, is cool. I'm never going to forget that spitting witch. Yeah. All spitting right. witch. Yeah. So anyway, the big titty mosque was, a yeah. Well, that's, that story definitely didn't disappoint. <laughs> no, no. That's that's crazy. And um, do you still fly? Like to this day, do you fly at all? No. No? I mean, I fly maybe once every few years. Friends that have helicopters, mm -hmm. but it's not a burning, you know, passion that I have to go grab a airframe and mm -hmm. maintain it and do everything. Yeah. Um, my wife is extremely anti me flying. <laughs> uh, I think she has some post-traumatic stress disorder from a mishap I had in an aircraft in South, South of Baghdad. Mm. Yeah. It's, a uh, well, I'll tell you the local aspect of it. We can tie it in cause you guys are Boise guys cause it is quite interesting. So my aircraft went down in the middle of a gunfight on April 5th, 2005. I mean, like literally in the middle of a major battle. And um, it was right next to the Euphrates River near this town of Yusufia, right? And so anyway, we get extracted and so on and so forth. The reason why my wife was post-traumatic stress disorder out of it is she heard from the rear D commander or well, the rear D NCO before I got a chance to get a hold of her because I didn't like run back and call home. I was the commander for one thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so it was like, you know, 48 hours before I got a hold of her. And so she had no, she knew that I was in a mishap, but she didn't know if I was okay or not. So anyway, that's the reason why she doesn't like me flying, yeah. but here's the local rest of the story. Okay. So, um, about a year ago, uh, I was getting ready to go on a hunt and you know, when you go on these hunts and you're and you got guides and outfitter stuff, you take some tip money so you can give your guide some cash at the end. So mm -hmm. I go over to this Wells Fargo bank that's in the Albertsons parking lot. It's like, I don't know, maybe a mile away from here. Mm -hmm. And I go in and this girl is helping me and she's got really good English, but she's got a little bit of an accent. And for some reason I just ask her, where are you from? And she goes, I'm from Iraq. And I said, Iraq. I go, we're at in Iraq. And she says, oh, it's a little town south of Baghdad. You wouldn't know it. And I said, well, yeah, I might. What, what's the name of it? She goes, Yusufia. <laughs> and I normally don't tell this story about getting shot down or getting shot up or my aircraft going down. Let's just put it that way. And uh, I'm, I, for whatever reason, I was like, I know all about Yusufia. My aircraft went down there on April 5th, 2005. And this girl starts to tear up 
and she's like choked up and she says, I saw your aircraft go down. I was nine years old. And I'm oh, like, wow. I'm like, what? And she's, and Yusufia would be, to put it in perspective, it'd be like having a major battle in Marsing, Idaho. Mm. Right. Okay. So it's not hard. If there's a battle on in the other side of the highway, you're going to be watching it. Yeah. And they're yeah. going to remember that. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so, so now I'm like, what are you doing here? And she tells me she, you know, came to the U S and I'm like, well, wait a minute, stop. How did you get to the U S? And she said, my brother was an interpreter for the U S army. And after he did his due process and diligence, they brought the whole family over. And so that's how she got here. Wow. And then ended up right here in this town, right down the road. That's ridiculous. You. Like, yeah, that's synchronicity, insane. man. I know. So I was telling some of our associates and they're like, we've got to go back and get her and we've got to, you know, do something like we're doing now. And I'm like, I don't know if she'd be up to it, but that right. she yeah. might, she and might. It's just nuts. I was traumatized and I called, I called my wife and, um, and she was with one of my daughters and I'm like, you aren't going to believe they're driving on speakerphone. And I tell her the story. And she's like, Oh no way. No way. That's cool. Well, I thought I had told all my, my other daughter too. And then about a, you know, 90 days ago or something, this came up and I brought it up and I'm assuming she knew and she's like, what? And she's super in tune to this event. Um, probably more so than not because, uh, when my aircraft went down, well, when I back up, I had left my kneeboard, uh, back in the talk and I had a spare kneeboard that was in the tail boom in the storage area in a helmet bag. And one of the things that my wife did before that deployment is she went and made little notes and she hid them all over in my stuff. Okay. I'd find these things like months later, right? An obscure place. So this one hidden note that was in this new kneeboard that I hadn't even gotten out yet, when the aircraft impacted, it flopped forward into some pages back. And the first thing that I saw was this note from my youngest daughter that, well, it was written by my wife for my youngest daughter, um, who was like three years old at the time. And it said, daddy, we love you so much. Please come home safe, Kylie. Mm. And so she had heard that part of the, the story mm. in the past. Right. And so when she found out about this encounter that I had with some girl that said she was nine years old and saw this whole thing go down, she was like, Oh my gosh, you know, yeah. Oh my goodness. You know, cause yeah. she feels like that personal, that's her personal connection into that whole incident and what happened and um so much so that she's doing bsu classes through the high school and she has this advanced speech class and she actually did a speech on the whole incident and stuff because wow. i think she's quite moved by that you know yeah. but it, but um i used to not even be able to talk about that mm-hmm. you know that whole incident and episode and, and if i like narrowed down that rabbit hole and just told the whole story i mean it's in itself it freaking podcast but right yeah but anyway no i feel the i feel the same way as we were talking about earlier like coming out and saying stuff because like you probably have the same thing just watching movies sometimes i remember when like a lone survivor came out mm-hmm. that was 2013 that was too close mm-hmm. because i was like i gotta get the fuck out of here yeah. like being in an environment you're watching something where it's close quarters um combat taking place like that you know, like I, I never, because I always, I never fought in buildings. You know, I was in uh, the Horn of Panjway in Afghanistan. It's fucking pot fields and farmers, <laughs> dude. 
and you don't know who's it was a wild west some yeah. days it's farmers shooting at you the other days it's straight up taliban um dudes and the other days it's you know like i get this said al-qaeda was there too i don't fucking know that was just my dumbass sergeant major and didn't know his fucking words right but you know so sometimes when you see movies like that i'm like that's just too much like, i'm fucking stressed out my blood pressure is too high right now <laughs> like i don't need this <laughs> you yeah. know um yeah so I, I see what you're saying. Like I, it's, I think uh, Marcus Luttrell's not an Apache fan, if I had to guess. And I've <laughs> talked to him several times, and really? actually I never got like that, oh, I love you, bro. <laughs> no, it's like, you motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because if you recall, he had some H-64s that came on station, but they had to break station because they didn't have fuel. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, I've always just made that assumption back into that lone survivor story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, like you just saying that you didn't used to be able to tell that. That's exactly what we were talking about. Getting through the struggle, being able to yeah. talk about it. And, and you're better off on the other yeah, end. Of and you that. don't, and it's extremely hard to be vulnerable, especially somebody you don't know. I've had people say some dumbass shit. Like I told you. The guy at the car dealership? Yes, the car dealership. <laughs> What's your kill count? That's the guy from California. I was like, get the here? fuck out of here. No, yeah. Is that a car dealership? What's your oh. kill count? He's like, you look at veteran. I mean, who asks somebody? What their kill? I yeah, mean, and I didn't somebody tell them, uneducated. I, didn't tell them I guess. anything. I was like, yeah, I was in the army, and I was like, what's your kill count? Like, huh. you know, you if you when you tell stories like yours to people you don't know or you don't know what they want from you, if they're expecting something from you, it's like you lose a piece of yourself. I you think know? I th- with snipers, it's more of a discussion point, in my opinion. Like, if you look at any of the documentaries on Carlos Cathcock, right. I mean, they're very adamant about what his count was right and then chris kyle who was a super good friend of ours and mine um obviously american sniper Mm -hmm. you know that type of thing i would have these discussions with him i would say i say i I say chris i don't understand why you're so fucking famous when you know you only kill like 300 people i did that in an afternoon (laughs) and he would say and he would come back and say, "Yeah, dude, but you were every time you pulled the trigger, it was a hundred thousand dollars. Every time I pulled the trigger, it was thirty-two cents." <laughs> this is obviously before the ammo crisis. Yeah, so. yeah, right. But there's that coordination where you know a cost-effectiveness and you know that type of thing. I'm also going back to the fob every night and you know staying in a hooch and you know snipers and guys are like you're staying out there for you know right in close proximity and stuff. So uh, I. I just feel like for whatever reason, really maybe Vietnam era, that that count became kind of like almost a standard. And, yeah, and, synonymous with that, yeah. Yeah, you know, and the whole Hathcock, White Feather, you know, he he was uh, well-known and, and documented, uh, you know, what his confirms versus non-confirms and that type of thing. Mm. Yeah, the most intriguing... Because I read a lot of these books, Vietnam era and stuff, and as well. The most intriguing one I've ever read was actually mandatory by my company commander, who was a, <clears throat> a CO at a sniper school for I don't remember what years, maybe two thousand three to five or something like that. But anyway, he made us read uh, Sepp Allerberger's book, uh, or the book. Sorry, about Sepp Allerberger, the German sniper, uh, sniper on the Eastern Front. And that's a hell of a story. Like, it really opens your eyes to some of the experiences that happened during World World War Two on the ground. Yeah, and what he went through and. Dude, there are some, like some amazing, like insane. One of my favorite books is aviation related, and it's about this guy Hans Ulrich Rudel, who just happened to be on the wrong side. He was fighting for the Germans, mm-hmm. for the Nazis, actually. But his whole story from the very beginning is just like this crazy, 
wasn't allowed, you know, into a fighting platform, ended up stealing one and going to another front and become the most lethal attack aviation pilot in history. Okay. But they were on the losing side, right? Mm -hmm. And so he's not well documented stuff. And um, at the end of the day, there is just, you look back and some of the stuff that is modern in our time that we fought in those battles and you compare them to what some of the stuff that happened in Vietnam, World War II, World War One, it's incredible. Yeah, we're capable of a lot. <laughs> like, yeah, I uh, I had this um, this renegade rocket of excellence. So uh, we found this perfectly good two point seven five inch rocket was from Cherry Point. Got shot. It was a training rocket, and it was intact. We had to put a little wooden top on it, but it's perfect. And what we did is I had all the guys, after they would go out and do an engagement, they would write it down on a like a sticky note, or sometimes there would be a piece of paper, and they just use tape, and they would put the date, and they would put the location and who the crew was, right? And so at the end of this rotation, this thing looked like a bad quilt, like with pinks and yellows and whites and whatever color was available, and it was all, all kind of keeping track. It didn't have, in many cases, our engagements, we don't know, how many guys, you know, it's like we shot a building, right? How many people are in the building? You don't know mm -hmm. until the ground guys go in, but they would, they kept track that way. And, um, when I did my change of command, uh, one of the gifts that the unit gave me was that rocket. Well, what they did though, was they took all of the quilt, the nastiness, you know, off from that rotation. They took it off and they made it all nice and pretty and put it on a nice plaque and stuff. And I was like, oh my gosh, why did you guys take that thing off? Yeah. <laughs> why did you take it off? And they're like, oh, you knew. And I was like, oh, you know. Yeah. But we weren't tracking. Uh, we would hear from the ground guys what our BDA was. That's how it was assessed. Okay. Uh, everything else was just a PK with regards to the target. And we didn't get granular into, you know, from there. Um, but, of course, the um, the regiment kept track. And that was a part of the, you know, the ground guy's responsibilities to go in there. And especially if they were a part of the fight, you know. So, anyway, yeah, that's a terrible for the used car salesman. I've never. <laughs> I, I think <laughs> that's somebody who's just, first off, an idiot. But he's uneducated and. It's, well, I expect that from like a nineteen-year-old. Yeah, yeah. Actually, shut the fuck up. That's dude. what I mean. Like, the guy's, he's yeah, still a child. Someone like that, but yeah. So, it, it's people are interesting, or you know, sometimes the come, they're they're really disassociated with reality sometimes, or what people are doing. You know, well, and most but, most people who haven't served, all they see is the movies and the video games. Yeah, there's no personal connection for them, and for them to ask them like that's fucking stupid. I never served, and I would not do that. Mm -hmm. But I also like we were saying. Sometimes you gotta like step back and look at a person and try and think like, yeah, why do they do the shit they do? And it's somebody who they have to them. It's all it's all movie fantasy to them. You know, they don't think about the fact that guys like you two have been there and had up close and personal experiences. Well, yeah. there's a lot of experience that's out there in the current call it vet pool guys that served. Just because the war has gone on so long, I mean. Remember, I was telling you how I was one of the very first Apache guys into Afghanistan, and we thought that we were going to be the only guys that had combat patches. <laughs> we thought after Operation Anaconda that it was done, and we were rolling up the flags and going home. 
And I'm talking with guys now that were just over there a few years ago and we're sharing, you know, stories that are like super similar to what they were almost well, 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, they just had the, uh, the 20th anniversary for Operation Aconda, March 2nd of this year. 20, that's 20 freaking years, dude. I mean, you got to think 20 years. You might have children now of guys that originally invaded <laughs> that dude, are in. Uh, it's, that's nuts. Yeah, it is nuts. Oh, my gosh. Because, I mean, what when, when 9-11 happened, what, we were in seventh grade? Seventh or eighth grade. Yeah, yeah, seventh grade. I mean, that's a date nobody ever forgets, but no, that's a long fucking time ago. I was home on leave in Idaho on a hunt. And if you remember, you know, flip phones were like mm -hmm. cool then. <laughs> and I didn't have one, but my buddy did I was hunting with. And we were hunting up above Idaho City. Um, and uh, he got a phone call from his brother in an area that I don't even know how he got reception. But mm. he said, hey, we've been attacked. You should probably get Butch, you know, back down to comms. So we drove into Idaho city and I had a, a calling card on a payphone, and I freaking called my unit, <laughs> uh, back at Fort Campbell. Mm. And he, and I talked to, it was major white was his name. He was the S three. And he's like, yeah, you need to get home as soon as you can. And it took me five days to get home. Oh. We went to the Boise airport and no one was flying. Mm-hmm. And there just happened to be a Marine, an ex-Marine that was working behind the counter as one of uh, the agents there. And he wasn't even with the carrier that I was trying to get on. I can't remember if it was United or Delta or whatever. But anyway, I was up there. I'm like, hey, look, I'm so-and-so. I'm with 101st Airborne Division. I need to get back to my unit. And he took down my information. And he said, hey, I will get a hold of you as soon as I can find a flight. And I ended up like not even the carrier out, it wasn't even related. It was the first flight yeah. going out of Boise back wow. to, uh, Atlanta. Um, and that's, uh, that's how I got home. Damn. Uh, but we had to sit around for five days and just, you know, watch over and over and over. Yeah. Yeah. That was crazy. And then when we left, we left on C fives out of Fort Campbell and we flew to New York and we flew around the twin towers. Oh, wow. And then we took off. Wow. Across. God, that's 20 years. I, and I, most people don't even think it's been that long. You don't think about that. Well, there's kids right now. There's people right now that can almost drink. They were born when it happened. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's you, 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 there's people that were born after it happened that have joined the military. That's yep. crazy. That makes yep. me feel kind of old. But <laughs> like, making me feel old, yeah, dude. dude. <laughs> making me I mean, feel here old. we are talking about we were in seventh grade. Yeah, he was already in the yeah. military. <laughs> no, I mean, I remember, I remember it was it was crazy how you remember details about stuff like that. It was picture day at our school. I will never forget that. I was standing in the gym in line to get my picture taken, and the gym class had one of those rollout TVs. You know, they used to roll the TV mm -hmm. out to the classroom right there with it on TV in the gym, and everybody's sitting there. And one of my friends came over and like, the Pentagon got hit. And I'm like, what's the Pentagon? I didn't know what the seventh grade. What's yeah. the Pentagon? And they're like, and the World Trade Center. I didn't know what that was either. And But I'll never forget that standing in line for pictures. And that was on the TV and you see it happening. And I remember some teachers turned the shit off because you had a bunch of seventh graders watching yeah. that. But I'll never. And then I, I remember after that when the invasion stuff would be on the news, you know, on CNN. Mm -hmm. my, my mom and dad would be watching it in the morning and I'd see – the tanks rolling across and it's like, whoa, is this real? 
That's so crazy. My wife and kids were still at Fort Campbell. I came out here by myself. And so I'm talking to my wife every day and she's like, you aren't, you can't even get on post. All the infantry's at every gate. They've got their machine guns, She, but crew served weapons. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh my God, you know, what is happening? That's, that's insane. Yeah. I guess we can take it back to your business real quick. What are your plans in the future with Cryptech? Do you got? We've got all kinds of awesome, cool stuff. I mean, it's really a kind of a fun time because the brand is really starting to scale. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've taken control of a lot of the different aspects of our, our, our brand that weren't always in our control. Um, no more third party cut. And so we're direct with our factories cool. and, awesome. um, you know, the distribution we're in control and, uh, we're standing up more talent, new systems. We've just put an ERP system in place, which is a fancy way to say, we know where all of our stuff's at all the time. And we're real granular and understand our costing and so on and so forth. And we're starting to scale on a number of fronts. And so anyway, yeah, it's just an exciting time. There's lots of development that's going on right now. There's a big push right now for our new Obscura collection, which is this uh, camel pattern uh, here. And uh, yeah, started started off as a hot water hot weather collection um and that's kind of like call it cryptic 2.0 um that was developed specifically for a european military element that we then brought into the civilian market so yeah it seems like day by day in every way we're getting better and better and uh probably from a local perspective the next big step is going to be a brand destination store which i was mentioning earlier and you know, we have these aspirations for a place where it's more than evident in the Treasure Valley that, you know, Cryptic's got uh, yeah. stuff going on. Yeah. We're not just this clandestine little thing you see on the internet. <laughs> yeah, I like the, not to sound weird, but I like the sexy collars on those. Those are like sexy guy collars. Dude, so listen, that collar has a patent on it. Really? Really. Yeah. No shit. It's a... A rugby collar that we've patented, and it was specifically developed in direct collaboration with U.S. Army Special Operations, uh, and the intent was with a plate carrier. So you know okay. the systems that would yep. zip; those suck because your plate carrier is always pushing on your sternum. Yep. So that's uh, that rugby collar is extremely popular. Oh, yeah, I was just saying, just looking at it, I'm like, that's so cool. Like, yeah, yeah, it has I'm going to cool buy one too. now. <laughs> buy we've, one. Got, we've actually got several patents on uh, on various functions and aspects of our of our gear. Besides just the intellectual property that we own mm-hmm. for all of the camo, mm-hmm. there's designs and features that we've specifically, that are very purpose-driven that we've got patents on. And that collar happens to be one of them. I said the same thing. I'm like, you guys are smoking crack. You fucking want to patent a collar <laughs> and then we looked into it and they're like i was like nobody has a patent on this thing yeah yeah so it's kind of like no one's taken camo netting and tried to flatten it out and put it on a fabric come on yeah <laughs> yeah how hard is this yeah well, that, that's something we're we're seeing with a lot of these people we're talking to that are business owners they're doing shit a different way like they're they're taking those steps like patenting a fucking collar little things like that and that's cool for me to see. I like to see guys blazing their own path, doing things like that. That's yeah. And whether it be the way they, they market social media, that's the way to go nowadays, unfortunately, oh, for some people. It's been painful for <laughs> me, man. And and there's some companies, like we talked to a guy yesterday, I told you who, he's a gun builder. 
social media is hard for those guys. Oh, it's super hard. And you can't get any anything pushed through. Yeah, and yeah. but now guys are going to podcasts. Guys are are advertising on podcasts because it's like we talked about that yesterday too. It's a wild west in podcasts. You can still say whatever the fuck you want to say. Right. And the and you're seeing that more, especially on bigger podcasts. You're getting big companies going to that to advertise instead of the radio because more people are listening to podcasts. Yeah, it's super hard for the gun industry, to yeah. your point. Like, um, and we've been impacted by constraints and censorship, mm-hmm. especially coming out of the Capitol riots. Yeah. Um, because there was some guys that were wearing cryptic at the Capitol riots. Like, so, like you can control who wears your shit. I can't. But yeah. the one main guy that they called the zip tie guy, right? He's jumping over some seats. And he's got a bunch <laughs> yeah. of constraints in his left hand. Yep. He's wearing all cryptic typhon. And a yep. black rifle hat. And a black rifle hat, <laughs> yep. black rifle coffee hat, <laughs> yep. yeah. And so we got everything shut off on Facebook and off uh, Instagram, all of our paid ads. And there is nothing you can do. And so back into this social media aspect, you know, you can build an enormous amount of awareness that 10 years ago, 15 years ago would have cost a lot more money than it does today if you do a good job mm-hmm. on these platforms. But then you're under the scrutiny of censorship and you can't only get away with so much. And you know, we had the New York Times contacted our office. They wanted a statement about how we felt about people at the Capitol insurrection wearing our gear. And at first I was like, you know, I was going to be a smart ass. Like, oh, I feel just as good as Carhartt and Wrangler and yeah. Nike and everyone else that was there. But instead, you know, took a step back and had our public relations people kind of tune something up. But the point, though, was is that those that platform was basically just taken away from us yeah and so it really woke us up to say look we've got to have some alternative marketing techniques mm-hmm. you can't be just uh you know solely dependent upon uh the communist party of zuckerberg yeah, yeah. And it, it sucks you know like like uh mike was saying yesterday the gun builder he's like i wake up every day first thing i do is check and see if my social media is still there because that's how he promotes i mean that's he has hundred thousand something followers on there and uh-huh. and that's the cool thing with podcasting though. Cause there's podcasts that have huge reaches that are still the wild west. You can promote whatever you want. Exactly. Like we talked about with Mike, if you're going to promote on a podcast, that's why kind of all of a sudden the way we could do our podcast is paying off. Cause mm-hmm. people, the way we just happen to go about it is like, now everyone's going to like, Oh, Butch is a badass motherfucker. Yeah. He's a super cool guy. I'm going to go buy a fucking I'm gonna hat go buy or a something. Shirt. Someone's going to see him, like, where'd you get that? And you yeah. know, it's like, and we get to hang out with them. You yeah. know, like it's everybody wins. It's not, this isn't for us or about us. Yeah, exactly. This is about everybody, you well, know. Like as of now, this podcast is growing. It's getting bigger with every episode, which is awesome. It's not huge. We don't have a million people listening, but some of the people we've had on, they've had some customers from listening to them on our podcast, mm-hmm. which is that's a, like, that's a win for us. That's why we're doing this. We want to get people out there and, and get people aware of companies like yours if they're not already. Yeah. So it's kind of cool. And, but yeah, I mean the social media thing, that's unfortunate because yeah. that's the way people but that, advertise. I, well, and that's honestly just how I'm wired too. Like, yeah, I own cryptex stuff already, but I'm the kind of person who's like, I don't know if I want to buy, like you go online, you're looking at all these tactical places, maybe you're looking for a gun holster, but then you see a video of the CEO and you're like, God, that guy's fucking cool. Mm-hmm. And I kind of go with Raven tactical. So I'm like, dad saw an owner of something I needed for something like that. And that's why I bought it. I was like, that guy's fucking cool. It's like, so, yeah. you know, like, so I feel like maybe a lot of people are like that. And when you see the person, you know, on YouTube or just hear them, you're like, yeah, 
not really want to. Oh, I want to do. I want to invest. I purchase I mean? things from guys I've heard on podcasts. Yeah, yeah. You hear them and you're like, "Fuck, I like this oh, guy. Yeah. I want to support that what they're doing." Bert Coon sounds like all right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, a, he's a dude we've both supported because we yeah. heard him on a podcast. Yeah, more of a personal relationship back into the product and the and the yeah, you know, the brand. Yeah, so to speak. But uh, yeah, I think that um, we've in this industry. Let's just call it the pro two way industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether you're a camo company, apparently, or a gun manufacturer, or ammo manufacturer. Um, you cannot, at this point, hang your hat on anything that is uh, mainstream yeah. and expect to be on it tomorrow. Yeah. You've got to, or if you do, you got to be extremely cautious. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's unfortunate. I can tell you this, though that when Claycorn and I were sitting around in between battles daydreaming about being in the outdoor industry and kind of coming up with this whole idea for cryptic, it was supposed to be a lifestyle by design, which meant we could still keep our families happy and we got to go hunt and fish a lot. I never sat around and said, you know, it'd be really cool is if we had a big social media need and we had to go do a bunch of social media ads and we had to do Instagram and Facebook videos and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. It's not genuine. It's, it is actually been a pain in my ass <laughs> yeah. quite literally. Cause yeah. I, if you look at my social media, number one, you won't find one on Instagram and that might be a, a bad thing for me and for the brand. Mm. Uh, and if you look at my Facebook, it hasn't been used probably in five or six years. Yeah. Um, there was, uh, some other individuals in the hunting space that really just were soapbox spotlight rangers. Right. And I just was like, this guy's never done anything in his life. And I don't need to stand up and toot my horn and take a shred of the truth and make it into some elaborate story, which, yeah. you know, if you didn't know you would, Oh, that's cool. But you're like, this is bullshit. Yeah. And so I kind of made that decision on, uh, not being like, you know, chained to my social media from a personal perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw those in, individuals as being very narcissistic, which they were. Mm-hmm. But now what I, I've reclassified this after some thought and, and just some, I guess, review. I do think that there's an, another approach which would be called strategically narcissistic if you're a brand. I think if you're a brand not the individual, like myself, but a a brand does need to say, hey, this is what's new. This is what, this is why this is cool. This is what's different. Not to the level though of it's the, you know, I love me show. Yeah, Like, you know, one of my primary competitors who's no longer around was like that Mm. on the hunting side. Um, Anyway, times have definitely changed. The new big one now is TikTok. It is, it really is. So and I'm like, t- when that came out, I was like, well, I don't understand what, what, how does, yeah. what does this work? And now it's like, oh, it's huge. Uh, when we, when we started this, I tried to get this podcast on every social media platform and I started a TikTok for the podcast. I haven't posted something on there probably in two months because I don't get it. It's, and, Dude, uh, and my, I, my I, daughter's, my daughter, both of them actually, but my one is because she'd have a bunch of her friends over and they'd be like setting up this you know, big dance yep. in the kitchen. Yep. And I'm like, that was what I saw TikTok as. Yeah. Now my guys are telling me like, Hey, we need to oh, do this and we need to do this. And I'm like, it's huge. And it's, yeah. big, I guess it's big for podcast clips from what I've heard. Like, and I've posted a couple of our little clips on there, but 
I don't get it. And I've caught myself because I have that app on my phone sitting there scrolling through the videos. I just watching the way I see things is I like to, I like to have a genuine, if I was gonna make a product, I like being genuine, putting a hundred percent of effort and passion into it and keeping it simple. In other words, I don't like, I'd like my 86 GMC back. I like having no fucking cell phone unless I needed it, yeah. like a GPS phone. Yeah. I don't like having an email, you know, and not because I'm a conspiracy theorist, like a barber thinks I'm, I'm one. Like he didn't understand. <laughs> I was trying to say like, no, it's just things that are just complicating my life, my well being. I agree. You know? Yeah. I've stated that the day I retire from cryptic, which isn't anytime soon, but I am going to have a new phone but it, only about five people are going to have the number. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. That's smart. Yep. It's just going to be my immediate family. See, I've, I've never had an issue because I was never involved in business and stuff until we started this. And I have all these numbers of people and I'm setting up podcasts and I'm like, holy shit, because I've never done this. Yeah. And like I told you, I'm trying to run this kind of like a business. And I'm talking with this guy from a different state from a company here. And then I'm like, I'm starting to kind of get used to it and learning how to kind of manage that a little bit. But for me, never being a business owner, that's all new to me. <laughs> well, the simplicity aspect of it is what, like an 86 Chevy, like you can actually work on the engine. Yeah. You don't have to have a analysis machine and, you know, some guy that has all the training. I can remember in high school being stuck to the wall in the kitchen when I was talking to my wife was at the time was my girlfriend. I yeah. mean, my mom was sitting there cooking, listening to every word. Yeah. And now fast forward, you've got FaceTime and Instagram mm-hmm. or not Instagram, Snapchat and yeah. all this stuff. I mean, it's just like a completely different uh, environment from where I grew up yeah, and yeah. you guys too. Oh, it's, I mean, it's like we're, we're the generation of social media. It came out when we were in what high school. Yeah. MySpace, MySpace came out when you were in high that. school. Yeah. And even then, like I've always had a social media. I've always had a hard time like pimping myself out on social media. I find it weird, narcissistic, like you were saying, mm-hmm. but like with something like our podcast, I don't feel so weird because I'm pushing what we're doing out there with the podcast. Yeah, so not, I don't, I don't feel the, so weird about it. It's not the Kevin and Jake show. Well, and what's funny is like yeah. when I post little videos, they're almost always a Kevin because I feel weird posting videos of myself. <laughs> and I feel weird well, about it. Well, he's also a lot better looking than That's you. a fact. <laughs> it, could be a, it could be a stunt double for Matt Best. <laughs> Matt Best. <laughs> Matt Best or Matt Damon. <laughs> Matt, fuck you. <laughs> well, shit, I guess we can wrap it up. We've been going for almost two hours. Yeah. Hey, hey, maybe I'll apply in the future to be the Cryptech model. Like there you go. When the Cryptech model leaves. <laughs> like, there we yeah. go. Yeah. We probably, we probably uh, got a little bit of work you could do. There you, there you go. <laughs> got a new line of socks coming out. There we go. <laughs> we have a sock, sock model. Yeah. But no, uh, we, we appreciate you doing this. Well, this, I appreciate. This awesome. I appreciate you guys taking the time to come down to our office. And uh, again, you know, you guys being Boise local and uh, I'm, happy to help you guys out and and enjoyed our time and hopefully do it again awesome thank you sir thank you